Hey everyone, it's Big E. Uh, thanks for coming back to us for our new podcast, uh, podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers, for Virginia police and sheriffs. Uh, this is a podcast I'm hoping to make a regular thing for you guys, a resource for updates in the law and also a chance to sort of study some fundamental law. Uh, this is a podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers who want to do it right, who strive every day to be better and try to find new ways to strengthen and serve their communities. Um, in all my time teaching law enforcement, working with law enforcement, over and over again, I have seen that you guys, you want to be better. You want to improve. You want to learn. And you want to every day be the best that you can be, um, be better than the day you were before. All of us can do that. And that's really at the end all that we can ask of anyone. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, we, haven't, we don't always have the resources to do that. Uh, and I've noticed over time that, you know, one of the frustrations for officers is how do I learn about the law? I mean, how do I really continue to learn? You get a couple of days in the academy and that's it. Um, and yet you're expected to be essentially, you know, lawyers. Uh, you, you need to know the law as well as any prosecutor, as well as any defense attorney, as well as any judge. And we give you very little education on that. You know, four hours every couple of years, that's not a lot. So this podcast is for that purpose, is to, is to help you learn um, help you study, help you keep uh, up to date on new laws, and that's what we're going to be doing here. I figured why not just uh, jump into the deep end of the pool uh, and go right into use of force law, which is obviously very comp uh, controversial and a lot of people have pretty strong opinions about. Uh, it's very, very controversial right now. Uh, but so there's really no reason that it, we shouldn't make sure that all of us understand what the law is then and how courts judge use of force under federal law and under Virginia law. And that's what we've been doing in the last couple episodes. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk specifically now today about uses of non-deadly force and about how federal courts have viewed uses of non-deadly force uh, in uh, civil liability uh, lawsuits. We're going to talk about deadly force in another episode, in a future episode, and we'll talk about deadly force under Virginia law and also under uh, uh, federal law. So um, when we talk about the use of non-deadly force, right, which is the vast majority of uses of force, right? So um, any, any kind of use of force, and I'm talking about anything, any kind of seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Um, it, you may not view it as a use of force under your directives, right? But if you say to somebody, hey, you, stop right there, come here. Right? If that person complies with that order, that's a seizure under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And so when you look at that continuum, that use of force continuum, and you see on that continuum that, you know, verbal commands is on that continuum, that's there for a reason, right? That's still considered to be a use of force. Now, the person, if they don't comply, then there's no seizure of the Fourth Amendment. But if they do comply, the Fourth Amendment thinks it's a seizure. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to fill out a use of force report for that. But it does mean, again, that you potentially could be subjected to liability. You point a gun at somebody and somebody has you know, tell somebody, get on the ground, get on the ground. That's, again, a use of force for Fourth Amendment purposes. If that person complies and that use of force was unlawful, they may have an action under the Fourth Amendment. And if you remember from the first episode, we talked about these lawsuits that when they go to federal court are lawsuits under 42 U.S.C. 1983, which is a lawsuit against a government actor for a deprivation of a uh, civil right. And almost always that civil right is going to be Fourth Amendment, the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. So how does a court decide whether or not a seizure is reasonable or not. We know that if a person brings a, law, a tort suit, an injury suit in Virginia for assault and battery, 
we know that the uh, court is going to resolve that based upon whether or not the officer had a lawful authority to do that, to conduct that seizure. But when we're trying to decide what the reasonable amount of force is that a person can use in a federal case under 1983, uh, we're going to have to figure out a, a standard for that. You might remember from the first episode that originally, uh, when we talked about qualified immunity, the good faith of the officer was a defense. An officer, um, for you know about a decade or you know ten or fifteen years, officers could talk about their subjective good faith. And then in the early '80s, the court put an end to that and said, "No, uh, we're going to only look at the objective facts." And when it comes, that was a case about a suit against cabinet officials. But when it comes to law enforcement officers. Uh, the key case on this, the key case that you want to look at on this issue, is the case of Graham versus Connor. And let's look at the facts of Graham versus Connor a little bit because the facts are pretty interesting. Again, this is back in the 1980s. Um, officer sees an individual uh, rush into a, a convenience door and then rush out really quickly, uh, get the car, drive away. What the officer thinks that he sees is a convenience store robbery or a theft from a convenience store. So he stops the vehicle. Uh, on suspicion that the individuals have just stolen something from the convenience store. And when they, um, when the officers uh, stop the individual, the, the person who's driving the car is complying, but the person who's the passenger jumps out of the car and starts running around the car and acting like a crazy person. And this is kind of a surprise to the officer. The officers say, hey, look, man, do me a favor. Just get on the, you know, sit down, don't move. The person's refusing to comply. The driver says, hey, look, you can understand my friend is having a sugar reaction. He's diabetic. He's freaking out. The officers don't listen to him. They don't look for a diabetic decal or anything like that. Um, a bunch of other officers show up. They end up uh, throwing the guy on the ground. Um, he, break, they, he breaks his foot. He gets several injuries. And he sues the officers. And the officers uh, say, well, look, we were just doing our job. We, we thought that we, we, subjectively, we thought this was a robbery or a theft. We were investigating it. Then this guy jumps out. He won't comply. Um, and he's running around. He's not listening to us. We thought we were in danger. So that's why we did what we did. The U.S. Supreme Court then has to decide, all right, are we going to stick with this? What are we going to do? Are we going to stick with this good faith defense? Um, or are we going to set an objective standard? And if we're going to set up an objective standard, how are we going to look at, how are we going to evaluate whether or not the officer's use of force was lawful? And what they decide is uh, that they are going to set up, again, an objective standard whether or not the actions of the officer were objectively reasonable without regards to what the officer's underlying intent or motivation was. So we're not going to take a look at whether or not the officers, what they thought, right? We, we subjectively thought there was a robbery. And obviously, um, the person who got injured says, no, 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 you subjectively thought I was black. And what I did was, you know, you were just stopping me because I was black. And we're not going to get into this argument. We're going to look at the objective facts because uh, that's going to be essentially the cleanest, easiest way to make a decision on this case. And we're going to do so looking from the eyes of a reasonable officer on the scene. If we try to evaluate the case from 2020 hindsight, right, that really wouldn't be uh, a fair way to judge officers because the officers can't know what the truth is, right? They can't wait and find out what the truth is until, and before they act because otherwise they'd be, they wouldn't arrest anybody until after they were found guilty by unreasonable doubt in a trial, right? No one would ever get arrested. And, you know, murderers and rapists and so on would keep walking free until there was a trial, uh, and a finding beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So we have to decide how we're going to evaluate a non-deadly use of force by an officer, and that's where we come up with this Graham versus Connor test. Now, this Graham versus Connor test is only about 30 years old. 
Um, it was enacted in 1989. And it's not that long ago. I mean, for some of you, 30 years sounds like a long time. For me, 30 years doesn't sound like that long of a time. This is a relatively new test, but it quickly took hold throughout the United States. And I think if I describe it to you, you're going to know it and you're going to realize you've known this for a long time, that this is in your directives, it was in your academy. Um, and what the court says is we're going to look at three, we're going to look at the objective facts and look at three factors. Number one, we're going to look at the severity of the crime at issue. Number two, we're going to look at whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of officers or others. And then number three, we're going to look at whether the person is actively resisting or attempting to evade arrest by flight. We're going to look at these three factors, and that's how we're going to decide whether or not the use of force by the officers was lawful. And this test, this Graham versus Connor test, which again is only about 30 years old, um, applies to all uses of force under the Fourth Amendment. So it applies to an arrest, but also it stops to it applies to investigatory detentions, any kind of seizure under the Fourth Amendment. And you see this language in Graham, and this comes up again and again. Supreme Court and other courts say they recognize that officers are forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving about the amount of force that's necessary in a particular situation. So when we try to understand what this test means and how it gets applied by courts, there's really no better case to talk about than Armstrong versus Pinehurst. And this is a relatively recent case, a 2016 case from the Fourth Circuit, but it's a case I think a lot of you know about because it's the Taser case, the case from uh, North Carolina, where the court ruled that the um, officers, uh, that, that the use of the Taser in this case was unlawful. And I want to talk about Armstrong versus Pinehurst in detail because it's a great example of how this test gets applied. A lot of people, a lot of law enforcement officers um, expressed surprise or shock at the finding of the court. But I think if we walk through the facts of the case and we apply the 30-year-old Graham versus Connor test, you're going to see that the result of the court wasn't really that surprising. So what happens in Armstrong versus Pinehurst? And the facts of this are really important. And the fact that it happened in North Carolina is really important. You'll see why in a minute. So um, this is a case where a doctor issued an involuntary commitment order against the plaintiff in the case. The plaintiff was bipolar, he was schizophrenic. Um, the plaintiff had been poking holes in his skin. He'd fled the emergency room uh, against a medical uh, advice. And so the doctor noted, uh, he requested the order, and this is important. So you know, in Virginia, when you get an emergency custody order against somebody, there has to be a finding by the magistrate that the person was uh, a danger to themselves or others. Excuse me, and others, right? Danger to themselves and others. Um, and so when you check that box, you know that form, right? Danger to yourself and others. You're making a finding that the person um, is both dangerous to themselves and somebody else. But in North Carolina, there's two boxes. You can be a danger to yourself, or you can be a danger to others, or you could check both boxes and you can be a danger to yourself and others. And here in this case, and this is important, the doctor checked the danger, the plaintiff is a danger to himself. But the doctor did not find that the person was a danger to others. So Armstrong, the individual who's been poking himself and uh, fled the emergency room, is walking down the street and police see him. He's near the hospital. He's calm. He's cooperative. He's eating grass clippings. Um, he's eating his gauze tape. He's putting out cigarettes on his tongue. 
um, but he's not acting in a dangerous way. At one point, he does start walking towards traffic or walking into traffic. Um, he's walking by an active roadway, but the officer's like, hey, man, don't do that. Come here, come here. And he, he does step away from the road. So at this point, he's maybe a danger to himself, but he's not a danger to others. Um, at the point, however, that the involuntary commitment order shows up, so the doctor has signed the order, the doctor has checked off, the person is danger to himself, I want the person taken out of custody. The order shows up at that point, Mr. Armstrong wraps himself around a signpost and refuses to move. So the three officers in the scene and two security officers from the, health, uh, from the hospital try to remove the defendant, but he won't budge. So about 30 seconds goes by and the officers tell him, look, if you're not going to let go of this post, we're going to tase you. Um, Armstrong refuses. The officers then use the taser on a drive stun, contact stun, on the plaintiff five times over a two-minute period. It, continuously, the plaintiff, each time he gets stunned, is, uh, is tightening his grip on the signpost. Finally, then, uh, the two security officers uh, join in, and um, they start trying to pull on him as well, and they're able to pull him off the post. There's, he's still struggling. They get him face down on the ground. They get him into handcuffs. Um, and unfortunately, after he uh, is let, while he's laying there on the ground, he just stops moving or breathing and he dies a few minutes later. Um, and they sue under the Fourth Amendment. The district court dismisses the case and the case gets taken to the Fourth Circuit. And so let's review the Graham versus Connor factors, right? Let's take a look at the use of force under Graham versus Connor, right? What were the three factors that we said that the U.S. Supreme Court said in 1989 that we would decide a use of force on? We would look at the severity of the crime at issue. We would look at whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of officers or others. And we would look at whether the person is actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight. So let's look at that first factor, right? The severity of the crime at issue. What was the severity of the crime at issue that Mr. Armstrong had uh, allegedly committed? Well, the court looks at this, and of course, the answer to that is there is no crime, right? Now, it's important to note here already that in order to lawfully use force under the Constitution, it's not like you have to check off all three boxes. You don't have to go through and have a severe crime and also someone who's an immediate threat and also someone who's resisting arrest or evading flight. If that were true, you'd never put handcuffs on anybody. Um, you'd never be able to use force against anybody. But the Supreme Court is saying we're to look at all three of these things and then, again, weigh them in the totality of the circumstances. But let's start with the fact that Mr. Armstrong didn't commit any crime at all. Officers were still ordered under North Carolina law to take Mr. Armstrong into custody and take him somewhere he didn't want to go. But it wasn't for a severe crime. In fact, it wasn't for any crime at all. So that weighed on Mr. Armstrong's favor. Now let's look at the second factor. The second factor is, does he pose an immediate threat to the safety of officers or others? Well, remember here that North Carolina has this different rule. An ECO can be signed with a person is a danger to themselves or a danger to others or a danger to themselves and others. And here the doctor made a finding that Mr. Armstrong was only a danger to himself. And the behavior that Mr. Armstrong was engaging in at the time that the officers used the force, used the taser, was he had wrapped himself around a telephone or a signpost, and he was refusing to move. So does that pose a threat to the safety of the officers or other people? And the answer to that is no. Now, by the way, did he pose a threat to himself at the moment that he was wrapped around the pole? I mean, that could be an issue, right? Um, you certainly could look at that. But the court said, well, what sense does it make that somebody is a danger to themselves and so you hurt them because they're dangerous to themselves. 
If Mr. Armstrong were trying to stab himself or trying to shoot himself or trying to actively end his life somehow and the officers used pain compliance, for example, to get the knife out of his hands, then you'd be using obviously a you know, reasonable force. You obviously you're saying, well, I'm using pain compliance to stop him from killing himself, so that makes sense. Here they're using pain compliance because his arms are wrapped around a signpost. And so again, from the eyes of the court, they're not matting that, 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 that second gram factor doesn't come into play. So now we're at the third gram factor. Is he actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight? Well, he's not attempting to evade arrest by flight. He's not running away. So what we're left with is he's actively, is he actively resisting? Is he actually fighting the officers or struggling? Well, what he's doing is he's passively resisting. And so because he's passively resisting at this point, then the court says, sure, the officers are entitled to use some level of force, right? They do, they have an order that says, you shall take Mr. Armstrong into custody and take him somewhere he does not want to go, right? And so that requires some amount of force. Mr. Armstrong is not going to go back to the hospital. He just left the hospital. He doesn't want to be there. However, the doctor has ordered that Mr. Armstrong needs to come back to the hospital and the officers need to do that for the doctor. But the court said, even though limited force was justified, the uh, use of a drive stun uh, five times by in a 30-second period was improper. The court found, uh, now interestingly here, this then brings up a second issue, which is an issue that we covered in the first episode. If you remember from the first episode, uh, you cannot be successful in a 1983 lawsuit if you are bringing a lawsuit on a claiming a deprivation of a civil right that's never been established before by a court. And the Fourth Circuit looked at this and said, you know, we've never really set a standard for the use of a taser against a, um, a stationary person who's never committed a crime before. We don't have a rule about that in the Fourth Circuit. So the officers couldn't have known that their actions were unlawful. So even though they agree in this case that the use of force was unlawful, the court dismisses the lawsuit because they say the officers couldn't have known at the time that we would have reached this decision. This is the first time this issue has come up. We're looking at it for the first time, and now we're deciding that the use of force uh, was improper under the Fourth Amendment. However, from that moment on, from the June, from the 2016 case on, the court uh, cautioned that when during the course of seizing an outnumbered, mentally individual, an ill individual who's a danger only to himself, police officers who choose to deploy a taser in the face of a stationary and nonviolent resistance uh, to being handcuffed, those officers unreasonably use excessive force. And so uh, from then on, essentially, you weren't permitted to do that. Now, I know a lot of officers looked at this case or read some news story about it, didn't read the full case, didn't read what it said, and said, well, then I can't use a taser anymore, can I? And remember here, this is a limited finding, right? So if Armstrong had been running away, if Armstrong hadn't been outnumbered, if it had just been one officer against another, if he had, instead of being nonviolent, if he'd become violent, um, if he, if it, this wasn't a case where the, he was subject to an ECO, he was being arrested for a robbery or for, you know, domestic assault or something like that. All of those facts would be different under Graham versus Connor, and they would change the facts of the case and therefore uh, potentially result in a, uh, in a different result. So, as, you know, consequently then, you do want to be careful in these cases um, you know, to, to draw too many conclusions. I mean, Graham versus Connor is the same test in all uses of non-deadly force 
and it applies in any use of non-deadly force. Armstrong, I think, is a good example of how the courts uh, apply this use of force standard. Um, but, you know, you don't want to draw the conclusion, okay, well, then I can never use a taser. That's not what they're saying. They're saying uh, you can't use a taser against somebody who, um, you know, again, is stationary, is nonviolent, is outnumbered by many people, um, is not a danger to other people. If you have an ECO in Virginia, right now, legally speaking, you're never going to have a situation where a person has been found by the, the doctor or the court to be only a danger to themselves because the order always says danger to yourself or others. So, um, you know, obviously your use of force, the totality of circumstances might be different in your case. But keep in mind here, this applies to any use of force. And a use of force can include something as simple as handcuffs. Um, there's a case called E.W. versus Dolgos, which is a case from February of 2018, also from the Fourth Circuit. This is a case out of Baltimore, but it's a case where a school resource officer arrested a 10-year-old child. The allegation was the child had kicked another student on the bus uh, on the way to school, and so three days later, um, the school de uh, had notified, had done an investigation, notified the school resource officer, who was a sheriff's deputy, and said, hey, look, you know, we did this investigation. Here's a video. Here's the attack. Uh, the officer interviews the victim, confirms the assault, and then interviews the plaintiff. And the plaintiff, excuse me, the uh, EW, the juvenile in this case, the 10-year-old, says, yep, I kicked her and basically didn't care. It was like, you know, whatever, nothing's going to happen to me. So at this point, you know, not there's no evidence here of what the EW's previous history was, whether EW had any behavioral issues or anything like that, any previous police involvement. But the officer says, well, I'm going to arrest you for assault and battery, and I'm going to take you to the uh, juvenile intake. And because it's an arrest and the officer is going to transport the juvenile in her vehicle, uh, the officer places the 10-year-old in handcuffs. Now, the 10-year-old starts to cry and starts expressing real remorse. And at this point, the officer then takes the handcuffs off and says, all right, well, you know, maybe we won't go this route. We'll do something different. Um, but, you know, the officer certainly was within the law to take the 10-year-old into custody the question was, what about putting handcuffs on a 10-year-old? Now, you could say, well, if you're arresting somebody, arrest equals handcuffs. So I always can put handcuffs on somebody during an arrest. That's what it means to arrest somebody. So, of course, the, uh, the use of force, the putting the handcuffs on the 10-year-old was lawful. But again, Graham versus Connor tells us that it applies to any use of force under the Fourth Amendment, right? And so the Fourth Circuit here, again, goes through and applies the, fact, the factors. Uh, severity of the crime at issue, whether or not the person's actively resisting or evading arrest by flight. Um, excuse me, that's the third factor. And then the second factor, where the person poses an immediate threat of safety to the officer or other people. So, again, you can you look at those factors and you say, all right, well, you know, in most cases, in most arrests, sure, you're going to have some kind of crime at issue. So it'll be, you know, a crime if you're taking somebody into custody and you're transporting them, right? It's not going to be for an offense that involves a fine. It's going to be a jailable offense. Uh, so that's going to be a relatively, you know, certainly higher severity than just some infraction. It's not going to be a speeding charge, right? Um, is the person a threat to you? Eh, I mean, they're not a threat to you, but until you put them in the backseat of your car, but if you're transporting your backseat of your car, that's usually a little bit higher threat. Um, and the person is not actively resisting or raiding because, again, most people do not resist or evade arrest. So that factor won't come into play. But again, the handcuffs is a pretty low level of force. So in most cases, right, that's not going to be excessive force. And the court says that's true, right? 
Um, but they also said, look, we're not going to make a blanket rule that says, therefore, you always can handcuff people. You always still need to look at, you know, who am I handcuffing? And in this case, it's a 10-year-old child. So the court writes in this case, we're not considering the typical arrest of an adult or even a teenager. We're not considering the arrest of an uncooperative person engaged in or believed to engage in criminal activity. We have a calm, compliant 10-year-old child being handcuffed on school grounds because she hit another student in a fight several days before. And again, we're in a school setting. We're not at a home. We're not in a situation where the kid could, um, you know, the kid was about to run away or flee. And so, therefore, the use of force in this case, in the eyes of the court, was unreasonable, right? This case was not severe enough. The, the child was not enough of a threat to call for the use of handcuffs. And so the handcuff use was unreasonable. Now, notice again, just like in the last case, this is a pretty surprising ruling, I think, because you again, you sort of say, well, I've always been trained in all of my cases that in any situation where I'm arresting somebody, I put him in handcuffs, right? That's what it means to arrest somebody. And the Fourth Circuit is kind of changing the rules here. And because they're changing the rules, this is where the clearly established rule comes in. So remember here in the first episode, we talked about that the courts uh, were not going to retroactively apply new rules to officers that they, you know, if they're making up a new rule that's never been heard before, they're not going to retroactively apply it to an officer because that would really wouldn't make, wouldn't be, wouldn't make any sense, right? The officer is like, well, look, I'm, you know, the clearly clear rule up until now was I was allowed to put handcuffs on somebody without arresting them. I was supposed to put handcuffs on without arresting them. Now you're changing the rule. And it would have been nice to know that before, about the changed rule before I got found liable. And the court said, we agree with that. So we're not going to apply that rule to this particular individual. So the case still gets dismissed. But going forward from 2018 on, um, although the use of handcuffs is rarely going to be considered excessive force when you have probable cause for the underlying arrest, um, under these circumstances where you have a compliant, calm child who's in a school setting, whose offense was several days before, um, it's going to be excessive force in most cases to use uh, handcuffs on that individual, um, absent some indication that the person has got behavioral problems or somehow poses a threat or some other kind of facts involved. So that's a good, you know, sort of two good cases that describe how the Graham versus Connor factors get applied. Um, you can apply them to any use of force, any non-deadly use of force that you encounter. And the Graham factors, the severity of the crime at issue, whether or not the person poses a threat and whether they're actively resisting or evading arrest, um, those factors probably show up in your directives. I would bet you that you'll see those show up. Um, the Graham versus Connor factors are factors that you probably should try to memorize. Um, you should be able to uh, you know, recite them if you need to to your supervisors. And I encourage you, if you're writing a report about a use of force, think about those factors in how you're structuring or how you're explaining uh, your use of force. Because that's how a court, a lawyer, uh, is going to examine whether or not your use of force was lawful under the Fourth Amendment in a civil, at least in the civil context, right? They're going to be asking you, well, what was the severity of the crime? What was, was the person an immediate threat to either you or somebody else? And was the person either uh, resisting? Uh, arrest or evading arrest by flight. And so if you can articulate those things in a police report, um, then you are doing so under Graham versus Connor. You're providing useful information and you're providing a useful report that can help uh, lawyers or judges judge your use of force or the use of force by another officer effectively in the future. So that's what we got today for today on uses of force and Graham versus Connor and so on. Uh, I do hope that was useful for you. I hope that was interesting uh, for the future. Um, next time, we're going to talk about uses of deadly force, 
And we're going to talk about also Virginia law on deadly force and also criminal law uh, for deadly force in Virginia. And, uh, and then we're going to turn, uh, hopefully in the future again, to other issues of searches and seizures and electronic evidence and interviews, interrogations and all that kind of good stuff. So hope this was useful for you guys today. Um, if you got other ideas, other things you want to hear, let me know. But that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>